Second Peter 1, 19-21. And let's read uh, that passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's pray for teachability to God's Word this morning as we kind of get a primer on how Christians should think and respond to the Word of God. But, uh, you know, the same Holy Spirit who inspired these these texts, and we're looking at Second Peter now, uh, also illumines the text to a believer's heart and, and mind like Bobby Dudley's or or Meg Strange, or Julie Miller, or Brad McCoy. And so uh, Bible teachers are just, they're a dime a dozen. There's all kinds of us. We're all over the place, personality-wise and philosophy-wise. You can find somebody you like somewhere, if not in person, on the Internet. But uh, it's not about the water boys. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And so even though I bring my own personality, and I don't try to be fakey up here, it's really about the teaching, not the teacher. So let's pray we'll be teachable to God's Word this morning. And uh, the Holy Spirit will illumine the text to us. And then also, as is, as is our custom, let's pray for our uh, military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. Okay? So, uh, let's see. Uh, Murray, pray for us today. Okay? Pray we'll be uh, teachable to God's Word. And remember these folks that are serving us and protecting us, okay? Thank you. Um, instead of a hilarious, in my opinion, top three, five, or seven list to kind of warm up our capacity for abstract thought, I want to show you a video, and it's a, it's a short trailer for a new television show, and I want to talk about uh, this program just in case you happen to see it or somebody else sees it and asks you about it. It's going to be premiering not this Monday, <clears throat> but a week from tomorrow, 8.30 uh, p.m. our time, and it's called Living Biblically. So I want to show you what CBS is saying about this, and then we'll talk about it just for a few minutes before we look at our passage in Second Peter. Okay. Now, that was, the, that was the short trailer. There was a longer one I was really going to play for you, it's almost three minutes long. Uh, that basically uh, uses a few uh, harsh words in it and uh, uses some graphic language. But basically the setup is this guy decides he's going to live strictly according to the Bible. And he finds out one of his co-workers, only because the co-worker is bragging about it, is being unfaithful to his wife, finds that out at the office. A different scene, this guy's name is Chip. Um, Chip Curry is the character who's going to live according to the Bible. Uh, after finding out at work about his friend at work and his living arrangements or whatever, he Chip goes to the restaurant with his wife and his 
pastor, spiritual advisor, I guess he's a Catholic priest, that's what it looked like to me, haven't seen the show yet, which is part of the problem with me critiquing it, um, but uh, so Chip sees this co-worker at a restaurant with his girlfriend, not his wife, and, and so uh, he asked, Chip asked his pastor, who's there at the restaurant, so I'm living according to the Bible strictly, what am I supposed to do? And the pastor just says, you must stone him. Now, that's a problem, because that's not correct uh, in context. Uh, did Jesus personally stone adulterers? If you're living under the Old Testament law, and Israel as a national entity was given the Old Testament law, not just the moral component of it, which is timeless, but also the civil criminal component of it and the ceremonial component of it. So that's why we don't, even though there's a whole book of the Bible, Sherry, all about how to sacrifice animals at a central sanctuary, no Christian group in the world sacrifices animals at a central sanctuary. How come? Because what was the point of those sacrifices? To anticipate and point toward Jesus. Neither do Christians anywhere in the world live under the uh, civil and criminal uh, precepts, direct uh, mandates of the Old Testament law. Because we live under, as New Testament Christians, Oklahoma State and U.S. federal law. And even if you were living under in Israel, in the Old Testament era, under the uh, civil criminal uh, dictates of the Mosaic law, uh, you did not murder or, or lynch adulterers uh, after due process of law if a capital crime was committed. Then the community, today when uh, uh, somebody commits an act of murder, it's the state of Oklahoma against that person. It's not me and Tracy, a guy who we know committed a murder. We are not at liberty to go kill him stone him or shoot him or whatever, we have to go through due process of law. And it's the community that acts after due process of law. And you see that uh, with the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Jesus doesn't, they, they want to lynch her. And they've set, the religious leaders have set this thing up. You notice the man is not there. The man has been warned to get out of there. They're going to use this woman who was probably abused and may have been a victim of sexual assault to start with. Uh, or she may have been complicit, we don't know. But Jesus doesn't stone her. In fact, he stops a lynching, apart from due process of law. That's the kind of thing you tend to see. Now, I've been reading a plethora of data about this, and you might, after I spent many hours of research uh, working on, just, just, just to brief you a little bit about this TV show, I thought, hey, I'm wasting huge chunks of time trying to, uh, learn what people are saying about a show nobody's seen yet. Number two, are any, is anybody here going to care? And number three, even when you go to Christian sources, Ben, you get all kinds of reactions. And I get that because we're not exactly sure what the show is going to be. It was interesting because guideposts, which tends to be a little Pollyanna-ish, uh, if that's a word, uh, their little article anticipating this show Basically said, what could go wrong? CBS is going to have a show about living biblically. It's got to be all good. And I'm thinking, not necessarily. Christianity Today, which has gone further left all the time, uh, kind of says, let's watch and see, but assumes it's probably not going to be very good from our perspective. And then a different site, not Christianity Today, the more famous one, but just Christian Today, had this article, which I have... Uh, 
edited, and so it's not, I'm not taking credit for it, although I did improve it quite a bit. But let me, I think the fastest way to deal with this is read this in two minutes and then say a couple more things and we'll stop. Uh, According to CBS, this show, Living Biblically, centers on a modern-day man, Chip Curry, who at a crossroads in his life, his best friend died and his wife finds out she's pregnant, so he wants to get his life straightened out, decides to live strictly according to the Bible, quote-unquote. What should Christians make of this? Like, what should we, how should we react to this? Clearly, this program is not expected to be a reverent, faith-based exploration of biblical wisdom. That's true. Some Christians might fear, put me there, some Christians might fear that the show will invite mockery of those who do take the Bible seriously. That's my fear, yes. Uh, Face your fear, you know what Others might be excited, guideposts. It could prompt new discussions with friends about faith in the Bible. So they're all over the place. Uh, this writer, Joseph Hartrop, who I've improved his article, but uh, I doubt that the show, if it hopes to reach mainstream America, will be an unrelenting roast of biblical believers. I think several questionable assumptions about that statement. Trust me, they're way beyond the point of being concerned about it offending us, right? That's just me. But it won't, but it certainly won't be a pious production either. Whatever the show turns out to be, and we don't really know, except the trailer I didn't show you because I thought it was too, uh, rough for a church setting, uh, kind of reveals some of the things might happen with it. Whatever the show turns out to be, it's worth reminding ourselves just what living biblically actually means. Uh, to treat the Bible merely as a list of divine do's and don'ts is to miss the point. What does Romans 3.20 say about the Old Testament law? Most of the gags in this show will go back to obscure uh, to us culturally and historically commands in the Old Testament that we're not even uh, obligated to observe because that was all pointing to Christ. But uh, what does Romans 3.20 say about the law, Kylie? By the works of the law, nobody will be justified in God's sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's talking about the moral law more than the ceremonial or civil criminal law. Uh, the Bible needs to be understood in its context. Its teachings need to be, which is what Second Peter says today. Uh, its teachings need to be heard as, when, and how they were first heard to be properly understood. This writer says verbatim, some commands were for a certain time and not another. And he's talking about aspects of the Old Testament law. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Uh, end of the law for righteousness. To truly understand the Bible, we have to see its bigger picture. God communicates to people through his word because he desires relationship, redemption, and restoration. The commands of the Bible shouldn't be ignored, but if we think that they're the ultimate purpose of the Bible, then we miss the forest for the trees. Uh, If nothing else, I think one of the premises of this show will probably be people who go to heaven have really tried to obey the Bible, even though a lot of the commands in the Bible seem to be obsolete and ridiculous and, and backward and stupid. But people who obey the law well earn their way into heaven. And what do you think about that? That's the ultimate blasphemy in the face of the cross. And that, that but I'm sure that will be part of the unwritten law premise of the book, uh, of the show, I should say. And this is based on a book from 10 years ago, but it's a different issue. Uh, another problem with this program is that it will emphasize the comic and trivial, strictly attending in a wooden sense to Old Testament ritual laws, 
while missing the truly challenging that through living biblically is that through a life of self-sacrifices. True believers who've been saved by faith and all this good stuff comes out as the fruit of salvation, true believers in Christ can learn to live out what he said about the ultimate summing up of the law to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself. And then the last statement of the article, bless his heart, and this is kind of where I am too in a, in a way. Who knows what will become of CBS's new TV show about living biblically? It might be quite a good laugh. To live biblically, however, truly is a challenge that transcends any network TV show. So let me just say two things that uh, this show won't do. Now, again, I haven't seen it. And let's go back to the original premise. Uh, you know, the preacher tells him he has to go stone his friend. So he walks over there and he's looking for a rock. And he's in a restaurant and near a uh, ornamental uh, aquarium. He sees a little rock and he picks it up, chip, and he looks at him. And he kind of looks at the rock, and then he kind of goes, I'm going to live biblically, and the, the uh, Catholic priest told me i got to stone him. So he throws it at him like a dart. He didn't really wind up and threw it. It'd be kind of like a, you throw a dart. Hits the guy on the forehead. The guy says it's, uh, you know, a cuss word, and then, uh, you know, that's the end of the, of the uh, trailer. Now, what happens after that? Carla, don't know. Uh, best case scenario, uh, the guy uh, who's hit on the head of the rock, comes back in the next scene and says, Chip, you know what, I hate the, what you did, but you know what, I've really thought about it, and I have repented of my sins, and I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and now as a fruit of my salvation, I'm going to beg my wife to take me back, and I'll never do anything like that again. Now, that would be good. If that happens, I'm for that, okay? More than likely, other stuff will happen, and the point is, uh, Christians kind of pick and choose today what, uh, which ones of the laws we obey, because if you obey them all literally, you end up doing things that are, you know, illegal, immoral, and stupid. I think that's kind of where they're going to go. But here's two things, and again, we won't know until you watch the show. And by the way, I'm not commanding you to watch the show. Since I've done this now, I am going to watch the show. I'm going to tape it. I don't watch TV live. I don't watch much network TV. I watch the Golf Channel, but it's not network, you know. Uh, because it's a great waste of time at best. However, I am going to monitor this show for a couple of weeks just to see where they go, and I may have to do a retraction of this whole thing, but I doubt it. But two things they won't do, they will not distinguish between the Old Testament law and New Testament grace. That Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, that uh, the ceremonial laws like the eating regulations, Acts 10, what God has claimed is don't call uh, you know, off limits anymore. They're not going to tell you that, yeah, the Old Testament law was wholly just and good, but it's partial preliminary and points to the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled that, and that's the whole point of the Old Testament law. They're not going to tell you that show. They will pick out a couple of obscure things that made sense in their original context for that group of people and try to apply that, and the idea is don't try to apply the Bible because you do all kinds of crazy, weird stuff. That's the first thing they won't do. They won't distinguish between that very important pivot. And a second thing they won't do, they won't dignify the Lord Jesus Christ as the central person of the Bible, right? That he's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer 
of eternal life for those who trust him by God's grace. And again, the premise of the show, I'm sure, is really good people who try to obey the Bible, misguided and backward as they are, according to the Bible, will earn their way into heaven. And that's a flawed fallacy at best. End of review. Let's move to Second Peter. The message of Second Peter is a Christ-centered hope about the future, way beyond your funeral, should motivate believers now. Just put your name in the blank. Uh, uh, Jan Palovic, uh, Seth Bearden, uh, Jenny Heath. Should motivate believers now to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness, biblical wholeness, and to avoid the heresies morally and doctrinally of false teachers. Think of this book as a three-story building with a big arch over the top of it. And for the last multiple weeks, we've had the call to worship, read from that arch. Kind of the key to the book hangs at the back door. Uh, be diligent to be doing the right things, be growing in grace and knowledge, and focus on holiness, avoid heresy, and be motivated by hope. Now, chapter 1 is all about, we're going to finish chapter 1 this morning. It's all about S. S. Gibb. What does S. Gibb stand for, Joe? What do you think? That was so good. What does what S. Gibb stand for? Still spiritual growth in believers, right? Yeah, that's what it's about. And we've seen thus far in, in chapter 1 that holiness comes by spiritual growth in believers. And it should be uh, expressed by a godly character that is full of good, good works. The right things for the right reasons. And now we're going to finish up the second part of chapter 1. Uh, true holiness and the pursuit of spiritual growth involves an embrace of God's faithful word. And we looked at verses um, 12 through 18 last week. And let's look at 19 through 21 this week. And this is what you see in those verses, Seth. We're going to see what, how, and where. Believers should regard the Bible as divine revelation. That's the what the Bible is. Uh, believers uh, should respond to the Bible as our moral and doctrinal authority. As New Testament Christians, realizing we're not under the Old Testament law, things like that. And where the Bible came from, we should regard and respond properly to the Bible because it is the Word of God written. It is the work of God by verbal uh, plenary inspiration. We'll talk about that. Look at for first part of that. Believers should regard the Bible as divine revelation. Verse 19a. This is the very first part of verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure than what? Go back to verse 16. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we, the apostles, were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father in the transfiguration event, such an utter, utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Gospels add, listen to him, and not to Allah or Buddha or anybody else. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. But we have the prophetic word in Scripture more sure than even our human perceptions as apostles of who Jesus was. A couple of things. The prophetic word here. So we have this prophetic word. It's easy to say, well, that's talking about portions of Isaiah. 
that was making prophecies, the book of Revelation that makes prophecies about the future. The prophetic word here refers to all of written scripture because prophecy is directly receiving divine revelation. And as verse 21 will say, scripture involved the process of the writers receiving direct divine revelation. So we're not just talking about stuff about the future that's unfulfilled, but everything in scripture refers to all of the content of scripture, right? One Greek scholar uh, translates this section this way. We have in the prophetic word, that is in all written scripture, even more sure information than what the apostles saw. Because even though your feelings and your perceptions can give you accurate information, scripture gives you permanent, more comprehensive information. And so he's actually saying, look, uh, you need to believe us in what we're saying about who Jesus is because we saw it and we heard it. But if you don't want to believe us, believe what the scripture says about it. Because that even trumps the human perceptions of the human apostles, who, as we know, were, were not ideal, were not perfect in many ways, right? It's interesting when uh, in Matthew 20, 22, where, uh, in fact, let's go there real quick. Matthew twenty two forty one. Uh, during the last week of the ministry of Christ, after he's done so many sign miracles, and at times he said, you know, if you don't believe what I'm saying, look at the miracles. You can validate uh, the ministry of Christ based on his miracles leading up to the uh, Passion. But these guys have seen the miracles. These are religious opponents that are trying to trap Jesus to say something they can use against him in a few days. They've seen the miracles, Seth, and they've explained them away as the work of a satanically possessed false prophet. That's what Matthew 12 says is the way the religious leaders got around the fact Jesus was obviously doing miracles. They didn't deny he did the miracles. Everybody saw them. They just said he's doing them in the power of Satan, Beelzebub. So they're saying he's a satanically possessed false prophet. So he doesn't even cite his miracles. He cites something higher than that. Uh, and in fact, they've they've ask him several uh, questions here on the streets of Jerusalem a few days before the crucifixion, trying to get him to say something they can use against him. And so verse 41 says, now while the Pharisees were still gathered together, if they've shot all their shots at him and he hasn't been, been able to lay a punch on him, Jesus asked them a question. They've asked him a series of questions. And he says, what do you think about the Christ, what the Old Testament describes about the Savior who's coming? Whose son is he? And they said he's the son of David. He's going to be, you know, a descendant of David, uh, which is true, right? But this, Natalie, Jesus is not just a human being. He's the God-man. He's Abby. He's the God-man. So he is the son of God and the son of David in his humanity. And watch this. So Jesus said to them, Anthony, verse 43, then how does David in the spirit, David in the spirit, who's King David? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer, but he's redeemed and he was used to write uh, 49 of the 150 Psalms. That's pretty good, right? Uh, why did David in the Spirit, in Scripture, and the Scripture can't be broken, call him Lord, saying, the Lord, God the Father, said to my David's Lord, and it's a well-known Messianic Psalm, very important, but the point is, David is referring to the coming Messiah as his Lord, so how can the Messiah be David's great, 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 great grandson, which means inferiority, uh, because the great, 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 great grandfather has more rank, humanly speaking, than the Messiah. The only way I go back to 
Second uh, Peter, the only way that David can, uh, Messiah can be David's son and David's superior is he's got to be the God-man. In his humanity, the Savior would be a descendant of David. And so according to legal genealogy, uh, he would be less, have less seniority than David, right? But because he's God incarnate, he's David's Adonai, he's David's Lord. And so my point is, Jesus cites scripture and he says, you know, what is David in the spirit? There was the spirit come in. Verse 21 of Second Peter 1 will tell us about that. But uh, yeah, he's just saying, look, the scripture can't be broken. The scripture is more certain than even your most accurate impressions. It goes more deep. It's more gnomic. It's more important. Second thing in this summary of what we need to think about and how we should respond to scripture uh, after looking at the what, we should see it as divine revelation. Now look at the middle of 19 through 20, the how. Believers should respond to the Bible as our moral and doctrinal authority. Now I think the upshot of this show, Living Biblically, is it's ridiculous to try and apply the Bible because you end up with all these crazy things. You're going to throw rocks at people at restaurants and stuff like that. And every time they do that, they're misinterpreting. They'll be misinterpreting the real intent of Scripture so don't let your friends who ask you about that, uh, uh, you know, kind of throw you on that. But I do think that, you know, if your average unsaved, nice American person watches that program and, and what do I have to do because this guy is living in adultery, uh, well, you got to stone him. And, you know, it's a Catholic priest telling you, so he couldn't be wrong, right? So now he picks up a little rock and does that. Uh, guess what? The Im- impact of that to me is these people, looking at this as a secular Christian, a secular American these Christians, you know, like Sue Smith Raska and Krista Bowles, they're not just wrong and backward. They're dangerous. You know, that's going to be talk about backlash. Um, I didn't read this to you, but uh, one satirical Christian website said, imagine a show called Living Quranically. And it listed all this stuff we could make fun about, you know, about uh, jihad and honor killings and things like that. And they said, guess what? CBS isn't going there. They're not going to go there. But they know we'll take it. But we can defend ourselves anyway. So we need to respond to Scripture in context without private interpretation as our moral and doctrinal authority. Look at the middle of verse 19. So we've got a word from God that's more sure than our subjective inputs to which you do well to pay attention. You mean like listen to this thing for 45 or 50 minutes on a Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, even if you're just in the sixth grade? Yeah, it's that important. You ought to be trained to do that. And if the kids don't get it at home, uh, get, get it at church, take them home and walk over the passage with them. If you've been listening, you'll be able to know what the passage means, relate it directly to your kid, and help them move up the chair. You know, I, I don't put all my cookies on the top shelf. I put some on the bottom. Parents are supposed to disciple their kids, not supposed to protect them from the word because it's you know, too much for them. You know, it's a t- you know what I would teach at a third grade level gladly. It'd be a lot less work. No more Greek or Hebrew. If I teach at that level, Wendy, I would. If I knew you'd only have third grade level temptations and third grade level issues to deal with, you're not, are you? But you're above third grade, right? I mean, yeah. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm, not, I'm just refuse to do that. Now you can go to an exercise class where they say, "Okay, uh, don't worry about you know dressing out. Just come in your street clothes, and we've got a special kind of a workout program. Sit down, 
Let me open my magic box here. Take one of those magic workout instruments out. They're called donuts. Now, everybody, hold your donut up. One, two, three. Mm. One, two. Yeah, you could draw a lot of people to that kind of workout. Are they going to get in shape? They're not going to get in shape. You know, they may feel good about the experience, but they're not going to get the impact that they're supposedly looking for. So that's the battle I'm fighting every day. You know, just so you'll know. Uh, so you ought to pay attention to this. It'd be a good idea to pay attention to something that's more important than your perceptions. You know, that comes from God. That'd probably be a good thing to pay attention to. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, that's our world, until the day dawns in, and the morning star arises in your hearts. Uh, ought to pay attention to this thing with our heads in our hearts. Uh, this reference to the uh, day dawning, morning star, etc., is a figurative way of saying until we directly see Christ. Okay, Then we're looking at the living word of God, right? Uh, whether it's face to face as we go to him at the rapture event or whether, uh, uh, or he comes for us at the rapture event or whether we die before the rapture, uh, absent from the body face to face with the Lord. But go to Revelation 22, talking about prophecies in scripture. This term morning star is used for the Lord in Revelation 22, 16. And let me say a word about that. Revelation 22, I mean, the last chapter in your Bible, verse 16, I, Jesus, I, Yeshua, God's Savior, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant. I'm David's Lord, and I'm David's little boy, right? Just like Matthew 21, just like Psalm 110, it all fits together. The bright morning star. So this is a title for Jesus. Now, the morning star is a reference to Venus, which is the third brightest thing in the sky. That is zenith, you know. You got, what's the brightest thing in the sky? What's the brightest star in the sky? Trick question. It's got to be the sun, right? What's the second brightest thing in our sky? The moon. Uh, how much, but you know, the crazy thing about that, Murray, is the moon's not generating any light. It's just reflecting it, right? And then what's the third brightest thing in the sky? In the sky? Planet Venus, right? And Venus was the morning star. And for much of the year in Israel, just the way it lies on the map, Venus appears approximately one hour before sunrise. So you got the morning star. It appears and you know it's not very much longer before sunrise, right? Uh, and this may be, I'm not going to pound the pulpit on this, but it might be a veiled reference to the distinction between the rapture and the second advent. If the appearing of the bright and morning star, uh, behold, I come quickly, I bring my reward for believers to give you what you deserve based on your fruit kind of thing, four verses before what we just read in verse 16. It may be just like the Venus appears about an hour before the sun shows up. Venus, the appearing of the bright morning star of Christ at the rapture, happens an hour, seven years, before the actual full bore second advent. Is that pretty interesting? Say, yes, it is, Pastor Brad. It is. It's very interesting. I mean, I found it extremely interesting myself. Uh, now look at verse 20 again. Uh, I guess moving to verse 20. But know this first of all, as you're paying attention to this thing, because it's more important than your senses or your feelings, that's first of all that no prophecy, and again, no, uh, none of the prophetic content of scripture, not about un, un, 
fulfilled stuff yet, but prophecy is direct divine revelation from God. None of the content of Scripture that relates to us is a matter of one's own interpretation. King James privately says is a matter of private interpretation. Uh, and private interpretation, that word for interpretation, literally means an untying and explaining and interpreting. And I think the point here is that we must read out of Scripture what it means by what it says in context, including the Old Testament uh, ritual laws about eating. And when you see those are commanded, and you're supposed to do it, you're supposed to do it, you're supposed to do it, but then you see Acts 10 where Peter's doing it, and God says, you don't have to do that anymore. You realize that those things were partial preliminary, and they had a purpose. Once the purpose was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, we're in a whole different paradigm. I think of the Old Testament as like spirituality with training wheels. And I remember getting my training this a long time ago now, but uh, I, I literally remember when my dad took the train wheels off, you know. And guess what? It's kind of like coming to Bible study for little kids. Uh, I did scrape my knee once, and it hurt. I'm living in Miami, Florida, man, where that's, uh, the road, you know, it's sunny every day. It's hard. The rocks are hard down there. They're not hard here, of course. But yeah, I skinned my knee, but that's part of the deal, you know, learning how to ride a bike. But man... Old Testament is kind of like spiritual on training wheels, waiting, uh, anticipating the coming, first coming of the Messiah. Now we're living between the first and second coming. Huge blessing. We kind of take it for granted because we're kind of used to it 2,000 years into it. But Scripture can't just be uh, yanked out of context. I call these Bible McNuggets. I mean, Americans like to rip verses out of context, and they like their chicken McNuggets. They don't want to eat baked chicken. That would be good for you. You know, without the skin, they'd rather eat. Chicken McNuggets, right? American Christians love Bible McNuggets. And quite often what they're thinking the verse says doesn't mean that because they don't read the whole sentence, much less the whole paragraph. So think in terms of sentences and paragraphs. But I think that's the main force here. And uh, that's kind of job uh, uh, security for people like me and James because you do need Bible teachers, people with some calling and some training uh, to help you shine some some light on Scripture in some detail. Right? Beyond the basic, uh, obvious stuff. I do think that God gives every believer kind of a grace apparatus for perception. The main things are plain things that get repeated a lot. I think it's pretty obvious sin is black and hell is hot and Jesus is the only way and through faith in Him, not by our works, we can receive salvation. Those kind of things are pretty obvious. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew for that. But on some of the fine points, things that are hard to understand, as Peter says in chapter 3, you kind of need some some extra help. And so that's kind of part of that. But hold me and James to this. We don't want to be ripping verses out of context. We want to be uh, not privately interpreting, but contextually interpreting Scripture. I also think that uh, in the same way that the Holy Spirit is the source of Scripture, verse 21, we can't just approach this as an academic or a routine exercise. I think you really do need to have a sense of seeking and submitting to the teaching ministry of the Spirit uh, as you approach Scripture. It can't just become a routine kind of a rote deal. It's got to be a dynamic spiritual thing for sure. Okay, So there's our, I uh, wish I had shown that earlier, there's our uh, baseline chart of Revelation. And so I was saying maybe, just maybe that reference to the uh, if that's the rapture, and that's the second advent, morning star here, the sunrise there. So I think it might be a interesting affirmation of that. I haven't heard many people mention that before. Okay, what are we looking at? Before we look at this last verse, 
We're looking at a good word about the word, what the Bible is, how we should come to the Bible and come away from the Bible as our moral, doctrinal authority, and now where the Bible came from. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy, none of the kind of scripture was ever made by an act of human will distinct from the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. Because human will is involved, as he affirms later. You've got to read the whole thing. Don't just read part of a verse. No prophecy. None of the content of Scripture was ever made by this uh, human will distinct from the moving of God. But men, the human authors of Scripture, uh, Peter, as he writes Second Peter, for that matter, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That verb to be moved was used to describe how the wind pushes sailboats around. So think of a sailboat being pushed around. You need the boat, but without the wind you don't get anywhere. Uh, these authors probably wrote, Paul wrote a bunch of stuff that's not in Scripture. When you read First and Second Corinthians, he refers to at least two other letters he wrote to them. But those aren't Scripture. They weren't preserved. They were just his input for them. I'm sure they were very profitable. I'd love to dig some of those up. But I wouldn't put them in the New Testament because God's preserved the, the books that we need to have as Scripture. So, yeah, you've got these men. I love that description. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, born along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Uh, and we've already seen Jesus says, David in the Spirit says this and that in Psalm 110. It's almost like maybe uh, Peter remembered Jesus saying that. Second Timothy 3 is the verse we tend to use for inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the believer might be mature, thoroughly furnished in all kinds of good works. But then... When you think of that one, David, always think about Second Peter one twenty one too, because it says none of the content of Scripture was just human viewpoint was just Paul's best guess, but men like Paul or Peter, or Isaiah or Moses moved, borne along like a sail ship pushed along in a good way in the right direction by the wind, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. I like Doctor Ryrie's definition of inspiration. I think it's helpful. To, to know and reflect on. Uh, verbal, meaning the words. Plenary, meaning all the words. Verbal plenary inspiration refers to the fact that God the Holy Spirit, as we just read in Second Peter 1.21, uh, superintended the human authors of Scripture such that they composed and recorded without error the exact message God required as timeless Scripture in the words of the original manuscripts not in the King James. King James doesn't come along until 1611. I'm pretty sure we had a Bibles before 1611. Okay, and you remember the uh, the Pilgrims uh, didn't trust that King James Bible. They didn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't be caught dead with the King James Bible when they came over in 1620. That was a brand new, only nine year old document at that point. Uh, they had a different English translation. So translations uh, are essential. They're important. We are blessed with a plethora of good English translations today. Uh, a few of the paraphrases don't, you know, turn my crank, and you don't want to use paraphrases for close Bible study. But, Gerald, there's no no reason that you have to learn Greek and Hebrew necessarily. I think the main things God wants you to know you can learn easily through studying English Bible and reading it yourself. And then hopefully James and I and other people can give you some, some more insight beyond some of the basic stuff. But... Uh, there's always going to be a need for new translations because the English language, in our case, constantly changes. I mean, right? 
I mean, the English language changes constantly. It's, it's a kind of a mongrel language, and the increase in communication speeds only speeds the, the fact that the language absorbs new words and disposes with other words or has different idioms, you know. Raining cats and dogs. You know, if that was in the Bible, guess what Richard Dawkins would say? You can't believe that Bible? It says it's small mammals come out of the sky when it rains. That's what they really believed back then. You know raining cats and dogs is an, is an idiom, right? It's just a figure of speech. So uh, that's that's a great definition. I say that from somebody who knew Dr. Ryrie personally, the late, great Charles Ryrie. Take this to heart. Believers in Jesus Christ are to regard the Bible as a divine revelation, the what the Bible is, the end product of it. It's a wonder your fingers don't spark when you touch the pages in a good translation. Uh, believers in Jesus Christ are to respond to the Bible as our moral and doctrinal authority, right? It's not what the Southern Baptist Church or Dallas Theological Seminary says, or Brad McCoy says, or Billy Graham says. It's uh, how we should come to and come away from the Scripture as our doctrinal moral authority, which means, among other things, don't come to church so you get more ammunition to use against your spouse or your friends or your boss. You need to come so that God can do some some work on you, right? Uh you have to be your number one spiritual science project, Clay. Okay? You gotta be your own spiritual, number one spiritual science project. It's easy to kind of work on uh, Henry or Dad. So, so much easier to kind of dissect everybody else's hangups, right? Than to deal with their own issues. And thirdly, believers like Clay Ward should properly regard and respond to the Bible as the work of God. Where, where did it come from? What's the origin of this thing? Uh, it wasn't just Moses' best guess or Paul's best guess about salvation and reality. Uh, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, you know, that's kind of one of the premises of this church, Tangwood Bible Fellowship. You know, the Bible's our middle name, which reminds me of one of my favorite jokes somebody laughs at. What do John the Baptist, Attila Hun, and Smokey the Bear have in common? All three have the same middle name. Smokey the Bear. Yeah. Uh, Seth, Bible's our middle name. Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. Where do we get Tanglewood from? Saint Tanglewood, who in the first century, now there's no Saint, there's no Saint, Saint Tanglewood. No. It, that was, that's the residential area we're in. Kind of, kind of tells, talks about our location. Bible, self-explanatory, fellowship. You notice how we start at 9.30 on Sundays? We're having too much fellowship start on time. Wednesday nights, some Wednesday nights, we don't, we start at 7, right? In your dreams. But you know what? It's all good. I mean, there's some Wednesday nights I hate to stop uh, the fellowship and get to the prayer and the Bible study because that's very important too. But sometimes... That fellowship is just as important. The apostles focused on the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, worship, uh, uh, prayer. Yeah. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, worship. Let's go to uh, we're gonna, go to Acts two forty two. I mean, it's my favorite verse. I'm drawing a blank on it. It's old age, right? But I do remember Acts two forty two. So that's the good thing. When I don't remember that, you can you know put me out in the, in the pasture. Uh, yeah, the apostles started a new church, Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. It's the first church in the church age. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's Bible teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, Lord's Supper, highest form of worship, 
and prayer, what happened to the evangelism, the Southern Baptists say? Glad you asked. Drop down to verse 47. Believers that get together on the Lord's Day and get that kind of input, and other times when they meet, are actually growing spiritually, can actually live a consistent Christian life. Uh, quite often when somebody in a business deal tells you they're Christian, you need to run, not walk away from that interaction, because they're going to set you up, man. People will claim this thing and then lie to you, cheat, and rob, all kinds of stuff. But here we've got blacksmiths and uh, carpenters and people working with their hands and farmers and ranchers, praising God, having favor with all the people because they're working hard and happy to be productive members of the culture, and they're not running around their wives and abusing their kids. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. It's God who does the saving. <laughs> And he's not restricted just to uh, between uh, 9.30 and noon on Sundays in buildings all over the city of Duncan, right? So I'll close with this. Uh, you know, the importance of Scripture and, and exposition is kind of one reason this church exists, and hopefully that will never change. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy. 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 I can say that when, when I'm not under pressure. Envy and slander of every kind, and like newborn babies, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of written, propositional, objective revelation in the scripture. It's not subject to private interpretation, and sometimes unintentionally we may rip something out of context or misunderstand it or fuzz it up. But uh, it's so easy for the world to make fun of us and belittle us. And I hope this television show doesn't do that. But to just rip stuff out of context and rip stuff written specifically to Old Testament Israel in a certain specific instance and apply it to Chip Curry today and make it look like anybody who takes the Bible seriously is deluded and backward and we all pick and choose and so all these moral things we are trying to stand for are just the ones we're picking this month and so help us father to have a real uh, conviction that your scripture is your word written it can be understood because you make it understandable to believers with hearts to to know and believe and do it and uh, even though there are some things hard to understand the main things are plain things and they get repeated a lot I thank you for each one of us here, Father. Uh, draw us closer to yourself through your word, and we pray you'd get the glory and the, and the praise for all of that, the process and the product. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.